What is going on, everybody? You're tuned into the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today on the show, we're joined by Jim McCann. Jim is the founder and chairman of 1-800-Flowers, one of the first companies to pioneer and popularize the use of both toll-free telephone numbers and websites in the early days of the internet to sell goods and services directly to consumers. What started out as a flower shop on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in 1976 has since grown into a publicly traded company worth over $2 billion and thousands of employees. Employees. Please enjoy our conversation with Jim McCann. Uh, my story is a typical story. I grew up in uh, in New York City in Queens County, South Queens, a very blue-collar neighborhood. Uh, I thought it was a pretty wonderful place to grow up. Looking back, maybe not so much, <laughs> but uh, it was uh, an interesting environment. We had... Uh, I grew up in a family. My dad was a small businessman. He had a, a painting a contracting business, you know, 10 dish, 25 guys working for him, depending on the time of the year. Uh, it was a neighborhood that was filled with uh, interesting folks. As I say, it was a civil servants, blue collar. Actually, the neighborhood I grew up in, it, it was made famous by one movie, and that movie was called Goodfellas. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, and many people's top 20, certainly, and, and mine too. But that was the neighborhood I grew up in. So I knew all of those characters growing up. And that'll give you an idea of uh, uh, of the kind of folks that were in our neighborhood. But there were lots of good, regular people too. So uh, <laughs> I grew up, my role models were people like my dad, who were small businessmen, contractors, plumbers, electricians, things like that. There were a few people who would like, put on a suit and go into the city, which was Manhattan, and I just never could imagine what it is they did in those offices all day to, to be busy and to, and to make a living. And, of course, we had a bunch of shopkeepers, too. And I worked in retail. As, I worked for my dad. I worked in retail as a kid. And all of those things were formative. I, I couldn't tell you that I was a good student. I wasn't. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, at the end of the day, I thought, well, maybe my career would be to follow the role models of the good people in our neighborhood and become a policeman. And that's what I thought I'd do. So I wound up uh, after a couple of different uh, college attempts where I struck out. I wound up at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, part of the City University of New York, where I uh, set out to get a college degree and, and to become a policeman. Along the way, I, I wound up by accident getting into a a career in social work and social services, uh, working at a, teen, a home for teenage boys who had become in trouble, got court referred, and I wound up living in a group home uh, which had 10 boys in it and uh, me as the uh, night counselor and the overnight counselor. And that really did change my life, guys, see? because uh, uh, what I lacked in formal education, I got in education living in and working in this this, uh, this group home with 10 teenage boys in one of the toughest uh, areas of uh, New York City. Uh, but I, I, it was formative for me. It was transformational. It taught me so much more about myself than, uh, than 100 years of psychotherapy might have. Uh, but uh, it got me into uh, my first real career besides uh, tending bar and working in stores and working for my father. Uh, but along the way, I realized that working in the not-for-profit social work world was enriching and rewarding in every way, but financially. And I married very young, and we started a family very young. And uh, I was looking for a way to support myself and my family because I wasn't going to do it on that not-for-profit social worker's uh, salary. And I wound up uh, uh, by accident uh, finding my way into uh, the flower shop business. Yeah. And before we get into that, thank you for that kind of background. And um, just to take it back to maybe at the time when you wanted to get into like police work and joining the force and, and eventually, uh, you know, be, being, you know, in social work, were there any experiences when you like when you were a kid that you can think of that led you down that path? I mean, you mentioned sort of this divide between like, quote unquote, the good people and the bad people in the neighborhood that you grew up in. Was were there certain things that happened to you as a kid, or you saw, or you experienced that you wanted to go and work for again, quote unquote, like the good people? Well, you know, it's it's hard to imagine, but uh, the the uh, 
the wise guys in the neighborhood, you know, they, they seem to be the uh, celebrities. Uh, they seem to have money. They seem to be the guys that everyone else looked up to. Uh, but my parents fought hard to make it clear to, to me and to us uh, that that was not the reality of the situation. And uh, I remember my uh, my dad being a contractor, a couple of those guys, a couple of them depicted in that movie, as a matter of fact, when they were not upstate, upstate meaning in, in prison, they'd need a legitimate job. And so seeing them show up for work uh, for my father every once in a while, and then they'd be there for an hour, then disappear, uh, you got the sense that it wasn't quite as glamorous as, uh, as you would think. You know, they didn't just... Uh, wear nice, uh, nice clothes and have a lot of money. You got a sense that it was a, a crazy kind of world. And then, and then you'd see, uh, then you'd see the uh, death and mayhem that took place around them. And, and my parents did a good job of convincing us that uh, that wasn't a world for me. Plus ethnically, I wasn't qualified. <laughs> so uh, yeah. And, and uh, one, one other thing I'd point out, Pat, when you asked that question, I'm the oldest of five children. Uh, my middle brother, Kevin, uh, was born developmentally disabled. And my that, that was the dark ages back then in terms of people with disabilities, particularly mental disabilities. And there weren't many support programs. There weren't real school programs available. And my parents created a group in our local community where on Saturdays they'd come together, these families that had all these kids with special needs. And they just formed a group because they needed to connect with other people, to share their stories, to get a moment of respite, to get to get away from uh, the fear and concern of their kids being on the street all the time. And that made a huge impression on me and my other brothers and sisters in terms of uh, what the people and families can do to support one another, which I think probably attracted me to the, uh, the, the, the social services in the first place. And then when you realize that the impact you could have on people and you know, doing that work as a very young man, when I started at uh, St. John's Home for Boys, I was only a few months older than the oldest boy in my group home. And uh, all of a sudden, I became my father. I was saying the things that he said to me just weeks ago. <laughs> and it, it, it just dawned on me that it, it, it seemed so much better to do the right thing and to help people rather than to exploit people. So, Jim, you talked about the fact that you know, being in social work uh, was very fulfilling, but for the financial fulfillment, and it it hasn't really changed much, unfortunately. Uh, it's still, you know, a fulfilling area of work for a lot of people um, in today's age. You know, same with, you know, mental health and just other social justice movements and causes. They don't pay well. You know, they're they're, they're not in the business of profit. They're in the business of, you know, making someone's life or a group of people's lives better. Um, and it's unfortunate, of course. But when you came to that realization, were you upset? Were you disappointed that this isn't something that you can continue doing because of the fact that it wasn't bringing in enough money? I'd say there are two things there, uh, Posh. One is... It's always been the case. Uh, people who choose to go into those professions don't do it to, to make a lot of money. They do it because they find it enriching and fulfilling in ways beyond beyond the uh, compensation. And uh, so, yes, I, I'd say there are people who can do it their whole careers, be wonderful teachers for 40 years, uh, be social workers for 35, 40 years, uh, be, be going to administration and run, run those uh, wonderful places. So those are people who have the calling and uh, and uh, get their rewards from other means other than financial. And those are people who do the good work, and we know them, and the, the and they're the fabric, the backbone, and the fabric of our communities. Uh, but for me, I realized I, I a I don't I didn't think I could do it as a whole career. I didn't think I had the right stuff to do it my whole career. I learned from it. I, uh, as a young person, you got disproportionate opportunity for responsibility because of the gating factor of the lack of compensation there. Uh, so I, I got promoted very quickly, and now I'm the administrator of the home, and now it's not a 24-7 job anymore. So over four years, I got promoted. Now I'm running the home, which is 
a few hundred uh, staff people, uh, uh, a couple of hundred uh, boys in residence in our group homes and our main home. Uh, so it was a, a wonderful opportunity to get a disproportionate amount of responsibility at a very young age. You see that in politics. Uh, you see that in the military. You see that in, in, in things like social service and, and such. So I knew I, I didn't have the right uh, right constitution to do it as a career. But I, I took so much from it. I learned so much from it. I learned so many other skills. And, and so when I got into my other job, which is uh, uh, buying a, a flower shop, uh, I, I realized that my better path would be to go do something else, but always keep a hand in. So I continued to be their fundraiser forever, for 40 years beyond my time working there. Uh, and, uh, and it allowed me to do the other things we do now. So we launched our own charity at, uh, at Flowers uh, uh, about six or seven years ago. Uh, where we go and do the same work. We go and uh, find, uh, as you, as I'm sure you know from your own lives in your own community, uh, people with disabilities, when they age out of school programs, there's so little for them to do. And I don't go a week, and I bet you don't either, without maybe without realizing it, where you come across a family that says, I have a son, he's 21 years old, he's finished with education programs. And, uh, and we're very fortunate that we have our, you know, good careers and we're well off. But he has nothing to do, nothing to do. What do we do? And then it becomes a more serious mental health issue. And so what we decided to do is because we're in the floral and gift business and because we have worked with so many wonderful people in that, in that business, our, our franchisees and our partners throughout, that we would try and create work opportunities so people like my brother, Kevin, and everyone like him who is, uh, uh, has developmental disabilities, but they could and should be working in a community. But heretofore, there was no way to find them jobs. So we decided to create a not-for-profit that did just that, find them jobs. So uh, the nice thing is, as we go through life, everything goes around again. And for me, it's we're doing social work in a different way in that we created a charity called Smile Farms where we employ hundreds and hundreds of people now who have developmental disabilities in a not-for-profit environment where we teach them job skills, mostly in the agricultural world. So that's the world we know. That's the world we know where whatever they grow, we can sell and, mm -hmm. uh, and we'll buy it from them. And so we created Smile Farms where we have uh, uh, about four or 500 people now working in full-time jobs, uh, growing plants and flowers, but more importantly now, mostly foodstuffs because our restaurant friends and partners say, hey, if you can grow me X, I'll buy all of it. And by the way, if you can help me train someone who can work in our kitchen, I'll create a career path for them. And so I'm, we're doing the same work, only now we're doing it on the back of a, a for-profit company, a public company in flowers.com yep. where, uh, where we have the wherewithal to make sure we impact a lot of other lives. Yep. I, I love that. And I think it's you know really a prime example of one of the key benefits of capitalism right and like being able to go out there and create a profitable business and then use that as a mechanism for giving back to causes that you know are important to you or that you care about instead of completely relying on government to do that you know government has so many things that they're trying to accomplish and you know these things could be very minimal in the grand scheme of things for them and so um i think i think that's incredible and i, I would hope to see more businesses doing that um no, I think you're right, Pat. I think that there's a, an important role for government, and it's a primary role. But then there's a place where philanthropy and business can intersect to do things where government government is good at doing good, big things. But they're not good at iterating. They're not good at experimenting. And that's not their role. Our role in business and in philanthropy is to uh, try new things. If it doesn't work, but once it gets going and it's big and you can demonstrate the benefit to the community, then perhaps there's a role for government to, uh, to, to do their thing. But I think there are three di distinct camps. There's the philanthropic world, there's the business community, and there's government. And we each have our own roles to play and they intersect and sometimes complement one another quite well. Right. Yeah. All I was going to say was, uh, there are times that Pat and I always come up with these, these business ideas and we've come up with hundreds over the years and almost every good idea that we have always has some sort of a social component that we always try to insert into it because we realize that at the end of the day, 
a business is really about the community that it serves, right? Whatever business that it is. And the best businesses that you see out there all have some, besides maybe like Amazon, but like they all have some sort of a community behind it, a community that's supporting it, a community that is like-minded that wants to get together and do something about something in the world and make it a better place collectively. So I think what you're doing is beyond admirable. And I think that for those business owners that are listening right now, it's important to think about how do you leverage your for-profit business and do good, right? Because at the same, you're you're making your money, right? The for-profit, but at the same time, how can you give back? And I think that's a super important uh, element. And and I'd be crass enough to point out, uh, Posh, that there are other benefits beyond the obvious here. Of course. And there, there are two selfish benefits that I'd point out, uh, and, and I'd echo what you say about businesses looking for a way they can do good. And here are the two other reasons uh, that I've encouraged them uh, to, to think about what else could they do. One is personal, family. So I'm a father. Uh, I'm the oldest of five of my siblings, so I'm the patriarch of the family. Uh, I have three kids and I have seven grandkids. And every one of them, my kids, my grandkids, my nieces and nephews, are all involved in Smile Farms one way or the other. They don't have a choice. Uh, they're running the uh, the annual baseball game uh, trip that, you know, a thousand of us go to the city field to watch a Met game. And we do it as a fundraiser and a friend raiser. And my niece runs that. And we just had our annual uh, gala in uh, in New York City, our big dinner that raises a big chunk of our money that we need each year. And uh, a dozen of my uh, uh, kids and uh, grandkids now and nieces and nephews are involved in that. And they're all volunteering. So it's a, it's a way to keep the family together and making them feel more like a family and letting them know what their responsibilities are. So that's a, a huge benefit to me and my wife and my siblings that we get to bring that to the family. And we all have reasons to talk about things. And we're talking and we're in a committee and we're organizing this trip or that golf outing or the, the big dinner that we run. So that's one set of personal benefits we get out of that. And the second one is from a company point of view at, at, at Flowers, 1-800-Flowers. The fact that we, uh, when we just had our dinner uh, uh, just two weeks ago, two weeks ago today, we had 35 or 40 people who work at 1-800-Flowers volunteer leading up to that event, doing the uh, packaging, uh, soliciting uh, donations and uh, prizes and raffle prizes and and then three or four, three over three dozen working that night uh, at the check-in table at the reception, working with the getting people on and off the stage. Those young people who we were all told, all told that they were these millennials are you know self-centered. They they they're all about themselves. They don't really work that hard. It's nonsense. They work very hard. They have care. They have passion. And for us to see. You know, I'm working elbow to elbow with uh, three young kids who are, you know, uh, 23, 25, 27. And we're stuffing bags, our goodie bags for that uh, golf event. And we're working side by side for six or seven hours. I would never have had that opportunity to get to know them at such a young age and such a new entry point into the company. We have about six or 7,000 people who work with us, except I got to do them through that activity. And you get to know what they're all about. Now when I see them, I know them. We bonded. We know one another. And you know what? They they uh, they bring their friends to volunteer at those events. And then their friends raise their hand and say, hey, uh, is it possible I could talk to someone in HR about coming to work for your company because your values are my values? So the two selfish benefits are it's, uh, it's, uh, so, uh, it's imposed work on our family. And that keeps us together, thinking about ourselves as a family, a big family unit. And it causes us to think about how fortunate we are and how we have opportunities to give back. And and there's a social element to that. And then at work, it has a huge cultural impact. When people Mm -hmm. can give their time and bring their friends, and then their friends want to come to work for us. And their friends turn out to be a lot like those wonderful young people we have. So there are other benefits. So I would echo what you said, Posh, about encouraging people who have a business to think about what charity in their community could they get involved with? Could they bring their energy, their talents, their resources, and their people who work with them? It could be two people. It could be 20 people to go and make a difference in that, that, that 
charitable effort, that not-for-profit effort, uh, that healthcare effort in their community where they might be able to contribute and make a difference. Yeah, thank, thanks that. for sharing that. Um, so you're you're working and you're a social worker. I think I read that you were like a bartender part time as well around that time. And this is like I think it's like the 1970s, if I'm not mistaken. You decide to buy, was it one flower shop? Uh, and why did you why did you decide to do that? Like, what made you think, okay, I want to go into the flower business? Well, I wasn't looking, uh, Pat, to go into the, the flower business. What happened was. If you're an Irish Catholic kid from South Queens, you have a genetic requirement at one time in your life to be a bartender. <laughs> and uh, and so I was. Uh, and, and, bo- and both of my two career opportunities, both came as a result of bartending. So the first one, local in Queens, I'm working at a local bar. A friend of mine comes in. He's a customer. I talk to him all the time. He runs this group home for boys. And I thought it was interesting. And I talked to him about it all the time. Finally, one one uh, night he's in there. He said, "Geez, you seem you know, like you'd really be interested in this work. If you're interested, why don't you come to Group Home, have dinner with us one night, and we'll talk about whether or not you'd like to give this uh, this career or not uh, a try." I did. I had dinner with him one night. He asked me to come down into the basement of this uh, two story uh, brick house in the middle of this uh, tough neighborhood, and said, "Come down to the office afterwards after dinner." He said, "What did you think?" I said, "Geez, this sounds really interesting." He said. Well, I'm in a pickle tonight because my regular staff member who's uh, here tonight and then overnight uh, called in sick and I don't have anybody at work. Uh, want to give it a try? And he flipped me the keys and said, okay, you're on duty. And that's how I started a 14-year career at St. John's Home for Boys. I won't tell you it was all pretty. And I won't tell you I was very good at the work uh, for the first uh, year or two. Uh, but I learned. And I had great mentors and great thoughtful, caring, giving people who took an interest in me and helped me to be better at the work. So it was, a, as I said earlier, a transformational experience for me. Fast forward, uh, uh, I get married, we have family. So working as a social worker, I need money. So Friday and Saturday nights, I'm working at a bar on the Upper East Side in New York. Uh, you can make a lot of money in a couple of nights. Uh, and uh, with young kids, <laughs> we had nothing else to do on the weekends. And one of my customers who came into the bar there uh, it was a Greek-American who owned a flower shop across the street from the bar I worked in. And also it was a young people's place, so you're flipping bottles. And he'd stay late. We'd chat uh, as we were closing up. And he tells me he has a new business idea. He's going on. He's going to sell a flower shop. Well, one of the things I did, uh, Pat and Posh, on the side was because I worked for my father all those young years, I knew how to do stuff, uh, you know, painting, plumbing, a little electrical, carpentry. So what i do is I'd buy a house in a tough neighborhood, Brooklyn, Queens. I'd fix it up. I'd either rent it off, rent it out, or sell it. And I just sold a building in uh, in Brooklyn, and I had a ten thousand dollar profit in it. And this fellow Nick, who's my customer in the, the bar on a Saturday night, tells me he's got this new business idea. He's going to sell a flower shop. So I said, Nick, uh, would you mind if I come work there a couple of Saturday afternoons before I come into work at the bar? He said, No, of course, but why? I said, Well, maybe I'm a buyer. How much are you asking for the business? And he said, uh, I think I'm going to ask $10,000. So I thought that was serendipitous. So I had $10,000 in my pocket from this profit I had in the sale of the building. That's what he's asking for. And I saw it not as being a florist, which I obviously became, but I saw it as a business that had no big players in it. There was no McDonald's of the flower business. Uh, it seemed like a nice business. I worked in it a couple of Saturday afternoons. You seemed like you were involved in people's lives at a very nice point, very celebratory point in their lives. Uh, it didn't seem complicated, and it wasn't, but it gave me a ch- So it was inexpensive to get into. It was easy to understand, and I went into it with the idea of not just being a florist, but of creating a business. So six months later, I opened up my second shop, and I opened up another shop every six months and then every three months until I had about 40 shops. And what happened when you first started getting interested in buying the first shop? Like why? Like you said, you had no interest in doing this long term. What happened when you first started doing it where you decided this is going to be a long-term thing and I want to continue? Is it Was it just business was great? Like you were, you were seeing the numbers, it, there was a big need for it or was there more than that? No, it was less than that. <laughs> what I mean was, you know, business wasn't that great, but I, I'm like a cockroach. I just keep moving forward, you know, and uh, even though business wasn't great, I figured bigger was better and there'd be economies of scale. 
there weren't economies of scale. <laughs> the bigger I got, I, there was no buying advantages. It just kept getting more and more complicated. Uh, it, <laughs> it was just, so I had, a, relatively speaking, a big business relative to the world I'm in, uh, but there were no economies of scale, and we really weren't doing that great. <laughs> yeah. Jim, what was the shop called when you bought it? Uh, it was called Flora Plenty, F-L-R-R-A Plenty, P-L-E-N-T-Y. And did you quit everything and just run the flower shop from the get-go? No, uh, not from the get-go. I kept my job at St. John's Home, now I'm the administrator, uh, so I'm making a decent buck. Uh, but I kept my full-time job and uh, and worked every other waking hour in the flower shops, uh, mm -hmm. every uh, afternoon and evening, every weekend, every holiday in the shops because I figured if I could pay the you know pay my uh, basic uh, food and mortgage kind of stuff, then I could afford to dump everything else back into the business. So way too conservative, kind of belt and suspenders kind of approach. It probably held me back a little bit because I was so conservative about giving up the income, uh, but I just felt, even though I'm not smarter than, than other people, I'm willing to work a lot harder than other people. So I, I probably didn't have five days off in the next 10 years. Right. And where does where does that come from? Because, you know, I would imagine other people, let's say someone else is a bartender and someone comes in and talks about, you know, what they're doing. Maybe nine out of 10 bartenders, maybe more, would not even like think twice, think about it, like to, to, pursue like an opportunity there like it sounds like you were very opportunistic like you were just like you know i don't know was there is there like a deeper thing there like did you always want to be like a business owner or anything like that that caused you to be that way or, or take advantage of these opportunities well i i'd say there i'd say we're the exception uh if you look at you know 100 bartenders you know are there a couple that have this crazy drive or the real need to be successful or, or, or fear or failure. And they are, they're all intertwined. I just met a young man recently who uh, now has about 20 restaurants here on Long Island in New York, where I live. Uh, he was a bartender and he and I just uh, were introduced recently. We, we had a, a glass of wine together and I heard his story. He's a much, much younger man and he's early in his career, but I'm listening to him and I'm saying, Oh my God, I know this guy. He's got that drive and he's going to build something. And, and, and he approached me because he heard about smile farms and he said, you know, is there something I can do with my restaurants and, and, uh, and clubs to, to give back to the community. So we came up with a program where uh, he said, I want something where my employees can get involved because everyone has to find a way to make their job to be more than just a job. And he said, I have these wonderful young people work for me. And I think if they thought that we were doing something that was really beneficial to the community, they'd have a, a better opinion of their work experience and us, and, and maybe it would be a good retention tool. And so we developed a program where, for his bars, uh, we grow in smile farms. We grow uh, the, the, uh, the things that he's going to put in drinks, the mint, and all the other uh, uh, herbs and everything that he wants to use in his restaurant. And so, we, so his people come from the bar now, uh, his workers. And they put their hands in the soil with off farmers and they uh, do plantings. And we name the beds after his different restaurants. These, uh, So I, I think you're right. I think it's uh, some people just have a, a fear of failure, a sense of dr drive. And whether they're smarter than everybody else or not, they're going to work hard. And that was me. Jim, what did your wife think about buying that flower shop? I mean, did she, did she think you were crazy? Uh, I don't think she thought I was crazy. She knew, she knew that I wanted to do something else. And, uh, my father discouraged us from, uh, discouraged me from going into his business. He, he, he didn't think he could accumulate, you could make a living, but you couldn't accumulate anything of value. You didn't create any asset value under un, any underlying value. And I remember he and I talked about that often about, okay, yes, I can make a living here, but I'll never build a business that I can sell. What's the, what's the, What's the created value here? And uh, so he, he made me very conscious that if you're going to do something, it shouldn't just be about making a living or, or getting a paycheck. It should be how do I create value? And uh, right. so, he, so that helped me uh, in terms of the filter that I look at to, in the small businesses that I considered. How would you create value?
And of course, that was in the early days of franchising, and you saw people creating real value in franchises then. And when you think of franchising, you think of McDonald's. And when you think of McDonald's, you think of Ronald McDonald House. And uh, my youngest brother, Chris, who's 10 years my junior, who now runs the company, he and I would always be talking about, isn't that amazing that McDonald's could create a charity that, like that that they owned, that they know everything they did uh, that benefited those communities was a result of their restaurants and their idea and their people's sweat and, and ideas and generosity. And so that's we were always in search of something where we could sink our teeth into it and make a difference like McDonald's did with Ronald McDonald House. And that, that gave birth to our, our Smile Farms idea. Yeah. And so at what point, you know, you mentioned you have the first store and then you're opening up, you know, subsequent stores every six months or so. Uh, at what point do you decide, all right, we're going to have to make this like a national company and like franchise. And where did the name, you know, 1-800-Flowers, like at what point did that name come from? So I'm, I'm 10 years in, uh, now full-time in the business. Uh, we have a whole bunch of shops, as I told you, all around the New York metropolitan area. And I realized this is just crazy. Uh, we're never going to become a national company this way. Uh, we, we didn't have the systems. We couldn't make it work. And, and back then, uh, this is, you know, before you guys were born, uh, but the 800 numbers were the big phenomenon then. And uh, you saw companies spending a fortune to try and get people to remember their 800 number. And I remember Sheridan Hotels uh, would do, uh, they'd have uh, uh, kick lines of dancing girls and guys singing 800-325-3535 just to try and get you to remember that number. And I thought, geez, you know, what if uh, you could dial it out on the telephone, you know, the number corresponded with the name. And it was uh, back then the 800 numbers were owned by the telephone companies and they were signed the prefix, the first three uh, numbers, were assigned geographically. And the prefix for uh, flowers, F-L-O-356, uh, was assigned to Wisconsin. And a, and a trucker, a long-distance trucker, had that telephone number. And a couple of guys out of Dallas, Texas, said, geez, why don't we, why don't we try and build a business around this? So they bought the telephone number from him. And they created a business, and I got in touch with them. They were just getting started, and I became the fulfilling florist for them for the New York area. And it started off like guns a blazing. They spent a lot of money. They uh, they did some commercials, and uh, three months later, boom, no more orders are coming in. They're gone. And I reach out to them. I said, "What happened? Oh, we 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 tried it. It was a quick experiment. It didn't work. We're we're going away. We're, we're shutting down here." And so I flew down to Dallas and uh, uh, met with these people. And there were uh, three employees left in the company, uh, two of them assistants and this one fellow. And I said, geez, I, I'd like to buy this. And they said, well, I don't know what you want to buy. There's nothing left here. Uh, and, and, that, and that's what I did. I wound up buying the company. Uh, but, uh, you know, here I am, a, a smart aleck from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, South Queens. And I didn't know much about uh, uh, bankers and lawyers and accountants and what they did. So uh, nobody snookered me, but I I uh, bought the company. I signed for all of its liabilities personally. Now, this is 10 years into business. I put up $2 million, which is everything I had earned and I could borrow to buy this company, which I did. It had a total of about uh, 10 or 15 calls a day coming in. And, uh, and you couldn't move the telephone numbers around. You had to a big application to the phone company to move it to, to New York. So it took me two years to shut it down and move it to New York while I'm commuting to Dallas during that time. And lo and behold, I find out that I'm $7 million in debt that I had signed for personally because no one knew how much they spent. They were all gone. And uh, gotcha. so I, I didn't do due diligence, guys. I did uh, due negligence and wound up $7 million in debt with a phone that was ringing 10 to 15 to 20 times a day. Not a good prescription. But now looking back, would you have made the same decision? Like the, like the name 1-800-Flowers, I'm sure, has had more of an impact than what you owed, right, in, in the grand scheme of things? Usually, yeah. I, you know, we're a, a few billion dollar company now. Right. So the answer is the biggest mistake of my life uh, turned out to be the best mistake of my life. Because uh, we we had great luck after that, we wound up becoming a national brand by not spending any money, 
So uh, back before there was the internet, these 800 numbers were a phenomenon. We became a national brand. I mean, it was just extraordinary, the good luck we had. And then uh, uh, my younger brother came to work for me then uh, uh, as, as we got going then. And he just graduated from university. So he was into the new technologies and we were trying them all. You know, what's if we could become a national brand and disrupt this little flower business with no money, who was going to disrupt us next? And uh, so then for us, it was, uh, what, what's going to be the next thing? And we, uh, were the first, uh, we were the first transaction of any kind that you can do on this new company called AOL. And we were involved in CompuServe and all the other new technologies. But the one that Chris kept bringing us back to was this Internet thing. And that was in the early 90s. And then uh, by 1995, uh, Netscape came along one of the most uh, wireless IPOs up until its day there in 1995, they introduced a browser which organized the internet. And then it began to matter. Then by 1998, we went from zero competitors to 21 venture finance competitors. And we decided with good recommendation from friends of ours to, to, to go public so we'd have the capital to fight this fight. And uh, the rest was history because we were fortunate enough to raise all the capital we needed in one shot with our IPO and uh, all those other companies withered and died on the vine. And, uh, and we're, we've been very, very fortunate uh, in that 20 years now that we've been public. And this was, you know, I think right in 1999, which is like right before the, the, the big, uh, you know, tech bubble bursting, did that have much of an effect on you guys since you guys had a, had a retail presence or, what happened there? It had a huge impact on us because uh, we, the good news is we got out in August of 99. Uh, the window was closing the day we went public. Yahoo missed their number for the first time and the market overcorrected. And people we admired and respected a great deal, uh, Steve Case and Bob Pittman and Ted, Ted Leonsis were over at uh, AOL. And I remember it was uh, January of 99. Uh, we were invited, my brother and I, to go to Super Bowl. And we stopped in Virginia to meet with uh, uh, Steve Case and Bob Pittman and Ted Leonsis at AOL, who we had this big partnership with. And uh, I remember walking out to uh, to get into our cab to go to the airport. And Bob Pittman, uh, I asked him, what do you think we should be doing next? And he said, I, th I think you guys should look to go to public. I said, why, why would you say that, Bob? He goes, because you're in the middle of a war and you don't know how long this war is going to last. And you're doing it out of your own pocket. And everybody else is doing it with this free money. And that was one of the, I remember that advice uh, uh, distinctly. And that was one of the things that pushed us to say, maybe maybe he's right. Maybe we should go public. And I said, Bob, what's your next move? What do you do next? And he said, I'd like to buy Time Warner and, and merge the digital world with the traditional print world. They have all the great brands and readers. And we have the new way that people are going to interact. He says, I think this is a marriage made in heaven. And I thought he was maybe smoking something. And lo and behold, uh, at the end of that year, they announced the deal and they merged in March of uh, 2000. And some people would say that's that's the pin in the balloon that burst the bubble. Yeah. Jim, I'm curious, what were you like as a leader, right? As a decision maker, you know, CEO, founder, you know, during that time specifically, Describe, you know, your leadership uh, style. I think uh, we're always growing, we're always changing. And I'd say back then, uh, one, the one thing that I'd say is still true today is that I, I am, I know I'm not the smartest guy out there, but I know I'm willing to work harder than most. And, uh, and I've also taken advantage of the good fortune, good luck I have. But the, the, the thing that I, I nurture today that I that was an asset for me then is I'm curious. I'm always, I, I know I can learn from anybody I talk to, so talk I do. What what can I ask you? What can I learn? So what can I learn from a, a smart guy like a Bob Pittman or a Steve Case? Where do they see the world going? So I don't have to be able to see it, but I can go to people who I respect and I uh, and I admire. And I can get from them where they see the world going, and I can make that my own book. And so I think I, I think one thing that was consi consistent today as it was then is I have a, a real a thirst and a curiosity. You know, 
it's interesting because at the time I can imagine it was a lot similar to what's happening now where we're seeing this huge shift where, you know, early days of the internet is kind of a lot of things that are happening now are very similar from what I've seen or read from people who experienced that time with this whole kind of web 3.0 metaverse. We saw, we're seeing Facebook, you know, rebrand into this metaverse company and, you know, NFTs and cryptocurrencies and all this stuff that's happening, which is creating this whole new world, essentially, of uh, everything, distribution, organization, you name it. And so I'm curious at the time, I don't know how, you know, just trying to remember back when you saw, when you heard about this internet thing, there weren't a lot of companies online. Um, what made you take the, I don't know if it was a risk, but what made you like allocate resources and time to actually do do that? before other companies kind of caught the wave and realized, oh, this is, we need to be online. Like we need to have an online presence. Uh, what, like, can you remember like why? Uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you something you just reminded me of as you asked that question, uh, Pat. Uh, one is I'd like to come back and get from you uh, where you think NFTs are going and how they'll impact my world. And I, I need a better description of what, a metaverse is and how it might manifest itself. <laughs> uh, but I remember uh, my brother and I, because we were big 800 number customers. Now remember, we both both know what we don't know and we're very curious. And so we'd always tap into the value add we'd get. Here's what I mean. So AT&T is a big telecom provider. AT&T has a lot of smart people in it. And we'd make sure we networked into AT&T to learn from the HR people in AT&T. How, how do you organize yourself? How do you think about recruiting people? How do you do compensation systems? And we were invited down to the Bell Labs in Homedale, New Jersey. And I remember this would be 1993 or four, two, three or four. And we're in the labs, they're giving us this tour and there's this guy over there on this computer. And he tells us he's on the World Wide Web and he's on, he's on with somebody from Germany. And, and we're all looking over his shoulder and he's communicating with this guy in, in text uh, over this computer on the World Wide Web with this guy in Germany. And, you know, my brother and I, it's, it's blowing our minds. How does this work? What are the implications of this? Well, you know, it started in university, but now it's in the military. And it's just, how is it? What, well, where do you see this going from there? And they get to sit down with a visionary like the, CEO of AT&T, who just because we were curious and nice young guys and, uh, and, and you know, we, you know we're, we're not big customers, but big in our minds, but not in their minds, but people who are generous and, and thoughtful and, and just said because they're curious, they want to tell us about it. So you had the CEO of AT&T taking time to explain to us where he thinks the world is going. And they just broken up AT&T and the baby bells and all of this. And you get this thoughtful, visionary man spending time with you, telling you his vision of the world is going, which became our vision. So we didn't have to come up with it, but we can sure go talk to people who understood that. We still do that today. Talk to smart guys like you about, okay, where, what does this mean? So we're today, uh, you know, back in when we had our first flower shop on the Upper East Side of New York, it only took 40 customers to really make our business work. We had a lot more than that. But 40 regular customers, and, and they weren't just customers, they were they became friends and they'd stop in just to say hello or make themselves a cup of coffee and uh drop off their dry cleaning while they're running around doing errands on a Saturday afternoon before they go back to their high-rise condo. And mm-hmm. and what we're trying to do today is mimic those relationships. Only fast forward, we have 40 million customers now, 40 years later, and the only way to keep some sense of an intimate relationship with those people. Is by using the new technologies and and using uh, uh, the social medias to connect with them. And so, uh, yes, we're a, a floral and gift company, and our job is to help people express and connect to all the important people in their lives. But uh, I write a letter every. Uh, I started writing a letter at the beginning of of COVID on a Sunday afternoon. I just wrote a letter to uh, uh, some of our customers. About where I was, where I was mentally, what I was feeling, the impact on our business. Fast forward now, uh, uh, twenty months, uh, nineteen months, and I have seven and a half million subscribers to our newsletter uh, that I send out on Sundays. Never ask for a, an order, never ask for a sale, never promote 
our businesses, but we're creating a community that's extraordinary. I wrote about last Sunday about, you know, we have Veterans Day, as you mentioned earlier, Posh, this week, and I wrote about the impact of and I asked the question that I've, that I've been asking a lot of people about for 10 years, which is what would, you know, I just, we just invested in an Israeli company, and they're all veterans of the Israeli armed forces. And it just seems to me the impact of, of a military service on Israel is extraordinary, on their citizenry, and how they learn to lead and how they learn to function as team. So I asked this question in my uh, Sunday letter, which we call the Pulse, uh, this past Sunday about would a year of service make sense for us here in the United States to, to get people sociologically aligned to get people to understand people from different socioeconomic stratas than them, to give them a sense of responsibility to our country. And I asked those questions, and I got about 3,800 responses so far from people sharing their point of view with me. So all we're trying to do today is use the technologies, tools that are available to us to mimic the community we had 40 years ago. And, and, it, and it knocks my socks off uh, that people want to engage and and uh, we have book clubs, uh, digital book clubs, and we have dinners of the month where thousands of people come together have a simultaneous dinner, and a Harry and David brand once a month. And we're just I'm having a blast using these new tools and driving the people in our own company crazy with our wacky ideas <laughs> of how to invest in and create community. So I, we're trying to become what you just talked about. We're trying to become the new community, which is a not a, a, a conversational commerce company. And I, mean, I, think, I think my brother coined that term six or seven years ago. He's the first person I heard you. That, but now we've evolved to being an engagement commerce company. If we engage and we serve and we create community, commerce will come from that. We don't have to shout about it. It'll come from that. So, Jim, earlier on you talked about how, you know, it was just this simple flower business, right? And, I mean, it really is. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of, ordering flowers, reselling them, putting them into a bouquet, etc. But it seems simple enough. You almost have you know complicated it over the last 40 years. Obviously, it's been in your benefit to complicate it and to make it a complex organization. But what have been some of the challenges of being in the flower industry, right? Whether it's supply chain issues, whether it's agricultural issues, whether it's you know shipping issues, what logistical issues, etc. What are some of the challenges that you experienced running a flower business over the last four decades, and how did you end up overcoming those situations? I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Give me your simple, top two. It is a simple business, uh, Posh. You're right. You buy the flowers, uh, you condition them, you uh, arrange them into beautiful bouquets and floral arrangements. And you uh, sell them to a customer, and we, you deliver them, and uh, and uh, and someone gets very happy, and there's a great uh, social connection that takes place. Uh, we followed our customers over the years to say how else would they like to express themselves and connect with all the important people in their lives. And so then you add balloons and uh, plush and chocolate and cookies and popcorn and greeting cards and digital greeting cards and. Uh, food gifts and fruit and gourmet baskets. So we just keep following our customers. How else do they want to uh, uh, express themselves and connect? What other kinds of gifts do they want to purchase? And how do we make that available to them? So we buy some companies. Harry and David, for example, we bought a half a dozen mm -hmm. years ago. I just got uh, some pairs from them a few days ago. Uh, they're the best. Uh, and, and that got us deeply into the agricultural business. So here this kid from Queens has learned more about those pears and how to grow them and where we grow them. And uh, now I have all these, a whole lot more reasons to lose sleep at night about whether or not there's a drought, whether or not the fire is coming our way, what impact the smoke will have, uh, how much how much uh, snow cap do we have in the mountains of southwest Oregon? Is that going to be enough for next spring? So yep. we, we vertically integrated where it's appropriate and, and where it's authentic and meaningful. But so all of those things come your way. The good news yep. is, uh, as I say to my brother, at least once a month, yes, we're taking a hit over there, but we still own the goose. So yes, you got to hit, yes, yes, our freight rates for ocean freight for uh, the packaging for our product uh, went from three or $4,000 a container to $20,000 a container. If you could get, yes, yes, that was a hit, but if you, 
every at least maybe a couple of times a month, I'd say to him, we still own the goose. Let's not get ourselves crazy about the fact that we took a hit there or we're taking a hit there or labor is impossible. All the things that every business is dealing with today. That's our jobs is to deal with yep. those things. And they come yep. with us regularly. And the other thing we're fond of saying, well, we've had the fires, we've had the floods, we've had the freeze. Soon there's going to be locusts. But thank God we haven't seen a locust yet. <laughs> Jim, I'm curious, and I could be wrong here, but why did you ever? Why didn't you ever buy a wine or spirits-based company to go along with the flowers? Uh, wine's a complicated. The answer is yes, and it's a complicated business. <laughs> uh, there are lots of uh, laws about it. We are in the wine business now, and I've made some really horrible mistakes. That we bought another wine business uh, several years ago. Uh, which was uh, turned out to be uh, not a great move for us. We wound up selling it off. Uh, but wine is an important gift, and we're always looking to find how best can we get back into that business. So we're in the wine business today. We have uh, half a dozen labels of our own. Uh, we sell about uh, $80, million, uh, $80 million worth of wine a year now. Uh, we think it should be a lot, lot bigger, and we're always exploring yep. how can we partner with other branded companies to do that better, and we have a couple of exciting uh, 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 partnerships in place now that could become quite large. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, I remember a few years ago talking with a friend about just the wine business in general and how millennials are going to be more into the wine than, for example, a cocktail or other sorts of spirits. And it seems like and, it's and true. Especially over COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Especially over COVID. I mean, you saw all these, at least my, Pat, Patrick and I are both 29 years old. And I mean, we're like in this, you know, zone of we've tried it all, right? You've tried the wine, the spirits, you've lived in the internet age, right before the internet age. We've kind of seen kind of everything. And we're this like tweener generation, it seems, or like in between, uh, what is yeah. it, Generation X or, yep. and then Gen Z. And, you know, it just seems like. Oh, you guys are too old. You're not Z's. <laughs> no, no, we're not Z's. We're in between. I think we're in between. Y, yeah, we're yeah. the, we're like millennials, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But. But yeah, so how, but look how at the has it been? You, have. you get to you get to look over the shoulder of a lot of people. You get to probe. You're doing what I do. Only you make it a program that creates a brand for yourselves. <laughs> creates income. Look how much smarter you guys are. This is you. You guys do what I do every day. Only you've crafted it into a platform and a brand and, and an income opportunity. There you yeah. go. How has it been being the chairman versus the CEO and having your brother leading the company versus? you leading the day-to-day -day. much better uh, much better because <laughs> he, he's better at, he's better at running the shop than i ever was and that frees me up to go do what's next uh so all the crazy things i talked about we're doing with the uh, our pulse and our book clubs and uh, we created a, a a community section on our site a year ago where we uh, one of my board members who's a genius uh, he said to me, what are you not doing now that you'd like to? And I said, one of the things we'd like to do is introduce members of our community, customers, to one another. Because someone in our community has already been through that, and this person here is just going through it now. Wouldn't it be great if we could connect them? And about a month later, he called me. He said, you know, uh, I, uh, I knew I'd heard, a company, uh, heard about a company that was doing about what you wanted to do. And I finally found the document, the, the, the deck on this company. It's a small Israeli company, which we wound up investing in just so that they could help power this. So we created connection communities. So if, uh, let's, say you're, uh, let's say you're 29 years old and uh, you're somewhere between an X and a Z and you're saying, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm feeling a little lonely. I'm not sure how to deal with this. Well, there's a lot of other people out there who've been through that before who wouldn't it be wonderful if you could connect to? And so we created connection communities. We have eight different categories, including caregivers, uh, the loneliness community, which is our, our most uh, frequently visited. We have 90,000 active members of our loneliness community. Yes. But here we create an environment. There's no profit in it for us, but we get to create people who have been through things with people who are going through things, and we match them up in group forums or one-on-one -on -one forums, all altruistic on these people's parts. and uh, so we have, you know, several hundred thousand people who are daily participants in these communities, and we get to do that. And and people say, well, why would you do that? A, because it was an interest of ours, 
And that's something that I could do as chairman because I'm not the CEO anymore. So I could devote the time to it. I can still wrangle the resources from flowers when I need them. And I can go invest our capital to, to fund this little company so they can get up and running so we can provide that service to our community. So it's so much more fun to be the chairman because I can do, I work on innovation. I work on strategy and, and development, you know, M&A activities. And, uh, and I get to be the cultural cheerleader and run around and shine a light on the wonderful things I think some people are doing in our organization to tell other people, this is the kind of behavior that gets rewarded. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned the word community many times, and I, I don't want to gloss over that because I think, you know, I, my, my question to you initially was going to be, you know, as, you know, 45 years or so since that you guys have been around, um, I'm sure so much has changed, especially from like a consumer behavior standpoint, but you guys have been there through and through, and you're still here very much alive and successful. Uh, and I was going to ask why, but it makes sense to me because you guys have been so focused on community and, you, you know, initially in, in the beginning or not in the beginning, but like somewhere uh, earlier, you mentioned, you know, we, we were talking about the, where the future is going and metaverse and all these like buzzwords right now. Um, and you said you wanted to talk about it really at the core of that is community too. And so everything that is happening, uh, is getting more and more towards community and not like the culty type of community, but like a community of people that are actually providing real value to each other and making each other's lives better on a daily basis. Um, and so I love that, that that's where the focus is. And, and I think that the companies that really, you know, are focused on that are the ones that ultimately survive and thrive over decades and decades as the world changes over and over again. Let, let me name drop on you a little bit here. It was probably a 10 or 12 years ago. I'm at a, a very small uh, tech conference. And I was sitting at a big round table, 10 people around at a breakfast. And there's this young man next to me with a T-shirt on. And we got talking. And we're talking about community. And he said, excuse me, but I think when you say community and I say community, we're talking about two different things. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I, I have a sense that when you're talking about community, you're talking about like a physical place. And when I'm talking about community, I'm talking about a, a group with a similar set of interests. And that was Mark Zuckerberg. And I, uh, and, and I came home and I told my wife, I said, geez, I met this young man. He was like uh, mm -hmm. irreverent and uh, flip-flops and a T-shirt. And he explained this business to me. And I, the next day I, I go to the office and I get a young lady who uh, uh, was uh, working for us part-time. She was at Hofstra University on Long Island. And I said, are you familiar with this Facebook thing? She said, oh, yeah, I'm on Facebook all the time. Back then you still needed an EDU address to get on. And I sat down with her alongside her at her desk, you know, for the next two days, showing me what she did with it on, you know, so curiosity, but just the way he said that and framed it differently, of course, he went on to be who he is. And I, and I, and I'm embarrassed to tell you, I didn't know who he was and what Facebook was at the time, but it just caused me to reframe how I thought about things, uh, yeah. about what community meant. Yeah. Well, hopefully you kept in touch with that young man and invested in the last in the 10 years. <laughs> well, I've been buying his stock ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just because I mean, it's funny you just mentioned that because you think 10 years ago, Facebook was like new ish. Yeah. New ish. Yeah. New ish. Well, that was when Instagram was, they bought Instagram was 10 years ago, actually. So was it 2011? Yeah, 2011. Yeah, but look at them now. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so Jim, uh, what else? What, Jim, when you're not doing 1 800 Flowers and when you're not doing Smile Farms, you know, how do you spend you know, your time these days? Well, there's only another, one other bucket. Uh, well, there's two others. One is you know, I do a couple of boards uh, just to stay interested in where new things are going. So I'm on a board of a company out uh, in the Bay Area uh, that's in the, the synthetic sciences, a biotech company, because I think that world is explosive with new things going on. So it's a, another chance to learn about a whole new set of things. Uh, and the, But the third bucket is when I stepped down as a CEO five years ago, it gave me the chance to uh, uh, create a family office, an investment platform. We do lots of different kinds of tech investing and uh, investing through a lot of different tech funds. Uh, so it keeps us in the game, which even though it's not flowers money, it's also beneficial flowers because lots of times flowers will become uh, the uh, the testing ground some of these new uh, new technologies so that that keeps the culture good and rich looking for the what's the next new new thing that we should be involved in mm -hmm. and i get to talk to smart young people like you 
who can give me some good advice about where things are going. So when you say a metaverse, uh, how how sh- how does that apply in my world? How how should we be thinking yeah. about how people so organize themselves? How yeah. does AI influence how people express themselves? How will uh, how will a, an AI aided visual world change things? Uh, uh, a young lady who's a, a friend of mine out in the valley. Uh, I visited with her uh, last year, and uh, she showed me her artificial world that she was creating. And I had the goggles on, and it was like, wow! Just open my eyes to what this could be. I don't. I can't tell you I understand it, but I can tell you I have a glimmer of an insight into how why people like Zuckerberg and you two guys are turned on for like what this world is going to look like. So I'm trying to keep up. And look through your eyes to say, how will this matter to me? Yeah, and I love that you have that mindset. And I think that that is a testament of, of why 1-800-Flowers has been so successful is because it's so easy to write off new technologies and new innovations, right? Without really doing your due diligence and like really understanding why why are so many intelligent, smart, you know, creative people uh, interested in this thing? Like you, you see like a major company like Facebook completely changing their strategy and going in a different direction makes you wonder, you know, like what is going on here, right? And these are people that are smart that have the dollars. And so, you know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's something that I think uh, every entrepreneur should have is that open mind, open-minded sort of mindset. Um, because even though you might not understand it, um, there's definitely something happening. So trying to understand, you know, uh, on a deeper level, why people are doing what they're doing, uh, you know, you could learn a lot that way. And so, and just, and just to add on to that, Pat, I think it's too easy to write things off and say, oh, that'll never work. You know, I met, I saw that uh, Travis presented a, a Goldman conference for private companies back in Las Vegas. Uh, was it 10 years ago? And well, what is this? Oh, it's a black car service on demand. Well, that was an easy way to dismiss it. Uh, and I, I would tell you, I didn't get it, but I, I, I kept coming back to it. And, uh, chat with him or chat with other people around it. My son-in-law is a banker who banked them. So just always asking, well, what else could that become? So everyone says, oh, of course I could see what's going on. By the way, it's still evolving. We still aren't sure what it will become. Look how And by the way, it's still not profitable. So that, you know, that's, that's a whole different story, though, with Uber. Yep. But you know, to add on to Pat's point, I think that it's even more challenging that as an entrepreneur or as a company, that when you have reached a level of success that, you know, you and flowers have achieved, it's easy to get comfortable. It's, 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 it's the, I mean, it's not even easy. It's like, the, the, it just naturally becomes comfortable. Like why would you fix it if it ain't broke? I mean, there's legitimately that, no the reason. Toughest challenge for all of us. Yeah. Pasha, right. And, yeah. But Jim, 99% of, of the time, but 99% of the time, I feel like it's right. Like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But then there is that 1% where you can make that educated guess. You can do your due diligence. You can do your research and say, you know what? I'm going to take a leap of faith, right? I'm going to try something else and integrate it into what I'm doing, right? With the 1-800-Flowers, there's a lot you can do in the NFT, metaverse, et cetera, space. Nobody's going to go say, go create 1-800-Cars. Well, that's right? why what, it's not what a complete Facebook pivot. just did. And, you know, I, I, I need you guys to tell me how can we be uh, the, rep- the, the place where everyone comes to to gift an NFT to somebody else. Yeah. We can talk offline. <laughs> love, uh, well, that's why I'm, I don't that's want to give I'm our ideas. To, I don't want to give our ideas to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands <laughs> of people over the, over the air right now. But one of my heroes and mentors uh, and my hero, my whole life for a whole bunch of different reasons, Senator Bill Bradley from New Jersey ran for president, was a huge basketball star at Princeton and for the New York Knicks. Uh, and he he told he said reminded reminds me frequently that Kodak had the best financial performance year of their history the year before they filed for bankruptcy. Hmm. Yeah, so much can happen. So it goes to your point, spot. Oh, everything's going good. Why should I mess with it? Because the world is changing, whether you realize it or not. <laughs> yep, I agree. Exactly. Well, I, I feel like we can literally just sit here and talk for hours and, and I know it's late by you. We appreciate you hanging out with us, you know, in you know, your evening and uh, sharing like all these stories and all your wisdom. I mean, there's so much to unpack here and I, I personally really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, you know, can't, can't wait to see what you, you personally do next, but also 1-800-Flowers. It's, uh, you know, it's incredible what you've built and, you know, wishing you all the, all Not the very best. Building. <laughs> building exactly yes and, and you know jim i do want to say that it's refreshing I, I i mentioned early on that we've interviewed 200 plus people 
And I did that for a reason because you interview 200 plus people that are, you know, young, old, in the between, have done business for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 10 years, five years, et cetera. But you realize that age or experience isn't always the X factor, right? I think the X factor, and I think that this interview and a lot of people will realize that is that someone like you who has that experience that has been building a business and is building a business for the past 40 plus years, it's just refreshing to know that you're still excited, you're still energized, you're still learning, you're still trying to figure it out, and you haven't once said, I did it, or I accomplished it, or I was successful, because you're still doing it. You're still doing this interview. You don't have to inter- get in- interviewed by us or by anybody else. I mean, I mean, 1-800-Flowers promotes itself. Flowers sell themselves. But at the end of the day, I think the best of the best entrepreneurs don't even either don't realize that they're the best of the best and they want to just keep going or they just realize that what they truly enjoy is not making money or being successful, but constantly being educated, constantly learning, constantly getting new information and seeing what they can do with it and, and see how they can integrate it. The, the right. And passing it on. Right. Exactly. And, and so yeah. you're a true, true testament to that. And I hope that entrepreneurs young and old that listen to this episode become more like you and think more like you. Well, I hope this is just the beginning of our relationship. I plan on being around a long time, even though you're in late stage of your life at 29. I hope we stay connected <laughs> and, learn, and learn together for a long, long time. Absolutely, Jim. We Likewise. definitely will. Thank you. <laughs>